So uh, maybe you have this, um, these smartphones, or maybe you've got a smart watch. Um, at the end of the day, our family kind of has a pattern, a habit. We don't always do it, but there's often this comparison that goes on amongst us of who has the most steps in the day. It's funny how these things keep track of that. You know, they can sit in your pocket and, and give you a number of steps uh, or on your wrist. There, there's this measurement that takes place, and we find out how many steps we have in the day. And then it's always the person who's a little behind on the steps who says, oh, yeah, well, I have so many flights of stairs. And we have this comparison thing going. I wonder, I wonder, instead of measuring steps, what it would be like if we were able to measure the number of people we see in the day. I wonder what that would be like if there was a tool that could measure, if the, there was a, a kind of like an odometer for a car, you know, if there was some kind of tool that measured the number of people we see in a day. Right now, I think the teachers are thinking, I just got out of school. I don't want to think about numbers anymore. But what if there was a, a measurement for the number of people you see in a day? For some of us, right now, this time at worship today is our high watermark for the number of people we'll see in the day. For others, this is just the start. This is kind of the hors d'oeuvre. This is the appetizer before things really get going because maybe you're going to go shopping later or out to a restaurant or, or maybe because of the flurry of open houses, you're going to see a lot of people today. Isn't it interesting, though, that we can see so many people that our numbers can be going up so fast. But how often do we really see people? You know what I mean? That moment when you can look into the eyes of another and really see them. Maybe that's something you've needed at times for people to really see you for who you really are to really see where you are in life, see the value you bring or maybe the, the struggle that you're in. How many of us go through suffering through life, feeling someone has often said that that's one of the greatest sufferings that someone can feel like they've never been seen. That amidst all the people, they're still lonely and not seen. Think about the flurry of social media and all the effort that young people and even those in their 20s and 30s are putting in that they can be seen in just such a way. They want to be seen. Today, we're going to read from a passage in Matthew. We're going to do Matthew for three weeks here, and today is our first week. We're going to look at Matthew and look at his portrayal of Jesus in particular, today we're going to read about when Jesus sees Matthew. So won't you pray with me that we might open God's word and, and get some clarity. Oh Lord, may you guide us through your word this morning. Help us to see as you would see, as you would have us see. 
Help us to understand your word and its call upon us. And may you bless us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's that first part of the passage that we might just read past real quick. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. It's easy. We could just move on. It's a transition statement. As he passed on from there, as he's going from moment to moment, from period to period, suddenly we have this quick statement that he sees Matthew, and we might move right on into the heart of the story. It's just a quick identifier, but imagine for a moment what this moment was for Matthew. To be seen. Matthew is the gospel writer and how it must have been for him to be writing this moment about himself. I wonder what it was like as he's writing so much down about Jesus and he gets to this moment. He saw a man called Matthew. I can't help but think that his heart probably skipped a beat right then. That moment when Jesus truly saw him. We read about Jesus all the time. We read that he's surrounded by crowds, that there are people around him almost all the time, that he has to often escape and get away so that he can pray and be on his own to recharge because the people are always around him. At times, they're even pressing in on him. And in this time in which there are many around, as he's transitioning from one moment to the next, we get this statement that he saw Matthew. I could say, well, I saw all of you this morning, but did I really see you? It specifies a moment in which Jesus locks in and sees him. 
amidst everyone else, amidst everything else that's going on, Jesus sees Matthew. I wonder if, as he was writing, if he's just shaking his head as he's writing just in disbelief that our Lord and Savior saw him. I think we all hunger to be seen, to be known. We began worship this morning with reading from Psalm 139, which describes in the words of the psalmist the idea that God sees us. God knows us. God knows everything about us. God knows the words that are going to come out of our mouth before they're even formed in our minds. If you read Psalm 139 in its fullness, we see that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knew us even before we were in our mother's womb. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God sees us. And so when Jesus is there in the world with us, walking in the world, and when he focuses in, he sees us. Make no mistake. Don't allow the lie to creep in that God may somehow not know you, not know everything about you. He sees you in a way that is beyond comprehension. And he loves you all the same. That's the remarkable thing about this story as it goes on. As it goes on, we find that the Matthew, what's profound about this is not only that he's seen, but Matthew, we got to keep track of who he is. He's a tax collector. Now, you've probably heard many a sermon or passage about tax collector are the bad guys. They're the low of the low. They, were, they tended to be, have to be fairly intelligent, capable, could count, probably need to be able to read people rather well, tell when they're lying, tell when they can irk out just a few more coins. They've got to be pretty capable. But when I say the low of the low, they're also at best a traitor. A traitor to the people. They sit there and collect from their own people the taxes on behalf of Rome with the full backing of Rome. They're protected. Imagine what it would be like to have a traitor among us that gets to walk around freely among us and even lord over us, and we can't do a thing about it. Imagine the anger and the resentment that would build up among us. That the traitor could cut first in line in the fellowship way to get their cookies and coffee. That the traitor could choose the best seat or ask you to move from yours. That the traitor could go freely anywhere amongst us and yet still take everything from us. 
And all the while, knowing that they're one of us, think about how the feelings start to just well up. If there was a definition of a sinner, someone who's missing the mark of God, someone who's falling outside of God's call for them, it was a tax collector. How many commandments could we list that are being broken by their activities and what they do? There are many. So there's something striking. It's a quick twist in this reading, one that we have to catch up to, but one that anyone in Jesus' time or thereafter would have read this and said, what? As Jesus passed on for there, he saw a man called Matthew and dot, 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 a tax collector. And the absolutely astounding thing is that Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. You know, we need to understand the picture of that moment. Everyone who may have been around to see this moment had to do a double take. Like, what did he just say? We need to imagine, even though it's not written there, even though Matthew didn't give it, that Matthew probably said, You looking at me? You talking to me? It didn't make sense. And what's amazing is that we hear that Matthew rose up and followed him. Rose up, that means he left everything that was, all that he was part of, perhaps left the tax booth, the place everyone else had to come and pay. He left it. Together with leaving all the protection of Rome, he left all that to follow this man, which suggests that he probably had been watching Jesus for some time in Capernaum. Suggests that Matthew, despite having all the wealth that he had and everything that he had accomplished, despite all the trade-offs he'd made, that he still was empty, that he still was struggling. Keep that in mind. Anyone who's doing well in life and looks to have it all together can still be struggling. The homecoming queen can still wonder if someone's going to ask her to the prom. That emptiness, that wonderment, that, that wonder if it's all going to fall apart at some moment that no one really cares, that no one really sees us is true for everyone. You are not alone in carrying that feeling. It's shared by us all. It speaks to the whole that is in each of us that is there permanently until filled by Jesus Christ, by the one who created us. So Matthew leaves it all to follow him. And the stage shifts. We go from this dramatic call to follow him. We now go to a house. 
in which Jesus is now there reclined at table the way they'd eat. They were there, and he's there with Matthew and other tax collectors and sinners and his own disciples. This is an odd arrangement. This is not the expected. Oh, we could say, well, we've been in the church all these years. We know that this is where Jesus would go. We understand that he's all about uh, going to those who are the outcasts and so forth. But do we really believe that? Do we really believe that if Jesus came back in this day, that other than worshiping on Sunday morning, that he wouldn't be anywhere near this place, but would be in every other place that we probably avoid with all that we are? He is there at table with the sinners, with those who've run from God and have been putting a finger in the eye of God. You see me? Ha! What do I care? He's eating with them. We can't wash away this picture. It is a grimy picture. And that's lifted up to us when the Pharisees come on the scene. They've been watching Jesus from a number of different angles. Where is he now? Oh, he's over probably at it's Matthew's house or some other house like that. And he's there with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And okay, that's enough. This is crazy. We're not even going to bother dealing with that man. We're going to talk to his disciples, those who are following him. Are you guys sure you really want to follow this guy? Are you sure you want to back this horse? Now, you need to remember, often in the New Testament, the Pharisees are listed out as bad guys, and they've got things wrong on so many ways. But let's not forget where they really came from. They came from a desire to help the people, the common people. The people that the strong religious leaders didn't have anything to do with, they were in among the masses, helping to steer them and drive them towards God, helping them to live righteous lives. Oh, but they had a whole bunch of rules to do that, but their underlying goal was to help people to come back to God and to be righteous before our Lord, to walk rightly before God. And so they don't mix any punches. They don't pull the punch. They say right up, they says, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? They don't skip around. They ask the question directly. Your teacher, the one who's teaching you, why do you allow, why, why is he doing this? Doesn't he know doesn't he know that by associating with these people that in some way he's probably favoring them? Condoning their behavior and actions? That to associate with them perhaps suggests that what they do isn't all that bad? I mean, if we looked for the epitome of a sinner, tax collector was probably at the top of the list. He's there with a whole group of people whose sins are very publicly known. 
Sure, everyone sins, and we all try to rework that and, and say we're sorry to God, but these people actively engage and without end are sinful. And yet, this one who says he speaks about God is hanging with them. How many times have we wrestled with the same question? How many times have we wrestled with, ah, you know, I don't know, should I say something, should I not? That's really not right. Is it my place to say it's not right? Or it's my place to say it's not right, but if I say that, am I going to burn this relationship? How many times have we struggled with that? Or how many times have we struggled with, well, you know, they shouldn't be doing that and so forth. I probably shouldn't be anywhere near this scene. I shouldn't be associating with this. Because by associating with this and not saying anything, it looks like I'm condoning it or I agree with it or I affirm this. How many of us have had to deal with hard questions like that? I suspect all of us. Pharisees put the question, why does your teacher eat, share life with the tax collectors and sinners? What's amazing is that it's not the disciples who respond. It's Jesus himself who responds. He hears what they say. He hears the question. And he's the one who responds. He's the one who gives the answer. The disciples don't have to answer for their teacher. The disciples don't have to give some explanation why they're still in the room and still hanging out, why they're following. They don't do that. It's Jesus himself who gives the answer. And he gives the answer with three separate statements. And what's amazing, absolutely amazing about Jesus' three separate statements is that he's very direct. He's straight to the point in all three instances. Jesus, the one who often gives us parables or when asked a question, offers another question back and, and kind of plays with those who ask hard questions of him. He who kind of gives answers that make it hard to figure out what is he saying and we have to dive more deeply in or we have to wrestle with a parable or we've got to answer the question he put to us before we can get an answer to the question we gave him. Jesus this time doesn't do any of that. He does what we hope he would often do. He speaks straight and directly to the question. He doesn't dodge it. He doesn't give some kind of cute answer that could be, wow, that's pretty profound. No, he goes straight to the question and he gives straight answer, which tells you something. It tells you Jesus doesn't want us to be confused in any way about the answer. It tells us that Jesus doesn't want us in any way to try and find some kind of, well, he's really kind of saying this, and allow ourselves to get away from the directness of his answer. 
It's like when a parent is asked something by a child and, and you're coping for kind of a partial answer or an answer that kind of has some nuances so you can still do what you want to do and your parent says to you straightforward, no. Is that no like no right now or is that no like later or is that no for all time? No. Jesus gives an answer that cannot be dodged. And he does it three separate times, all in order. And so I suggest to you, we should probably listen. We should listen to the answer to why does your tax or your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The first statement, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick the inferences do. Jesus gives his first answer in a metaphor, a metaphor that's pretty clear. It's pretty straightforward. How many of you are feeling really good today? And since you're feeling really good, I expect that the next place you're going today is the doctor, right? No. If you're feeling good and everything, now granted, I understand there's some of us who feel like I never feel good. I've got an ache here. My knee's just not right. But I'm talking about you're good. And if you're good, you're not going to the doctor. That doesn't make sense. Jesus is pointing out who he is. He's the great physician, and the great physician is here to heal those who are sick. If we are going to follow Christ, we need to realize we're following the one who has come to cure the world. The one who's come to cure and help those who are sick. Which means, by corollary, that's our work as well. That's our calling as well. Jesus is not mincing words. He is very clear to the Pharisees. The Pharisees have written off this group. These tax collectors, they're sinners. They're beyond work. We're busy trying to get people to be righteous, and they insist on being on an unrighteous path. We're done with them. We can't even hang with them. Other people think we affirm that. We can't associate with that. Jesus says, I came precisely for them. Which means if any of us are sitting here struggling, feeling like if God only knew who I really was, or if others really knew this part of my past, would they still look at me the same way? Am I really still lovable? There's your answer. He came to heal the sick. And he's the physician. He can. Remember, he says it three times, not just once. The third statement, this is the first statement. The third statement, I know I'm jumping ahead. We'll get back, don't worry. The third statement is this, just more strictly to the point. I came not to call right the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Remember, the Pharisees are about making people righteous and good. Jesus is too, but he's pointing out, hey, look at I'm not coming for those who are already on the path, who are already trying to work out what it is to follow God and be right before God. I didn't come for them. Jesus is not on a tour handing out gold stars and badges for those of us who are doing really well and we're doing great. It's not here. He's not here for an attaboy. Way to go. Keep it up. That's not why he came. He came for the sinners. He came for us. This is the one who left the 99 to go after the one. He is the good shepherd. The good shepherd cares about all of us. The 99 are cared for. They're in the flock. They're doing well. He's about the one. And that tells us something incredible about God. It tells us the very one that we thumbed our nose at creation who ran in the opposite direction of God after creating such a beautiful creation, those of us who would run from God, that God still runs after us. This is a powerful moment in which we get a window into the heart of God. And we get to see what Jesus' call here on earth was. His call was to the broken, the sinners, those who are sick, those of us, us, who need him. That's his call, and that's the call he's placed on us as well, to go into those broken places, to be with those who are struggling and hurting and, and quite frankly, are still running from God because they're still looking for that which will fill because they haven't found it yet. And you know what? When they've tried out the church, it hurt them. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Now, I've shared the first and the third statement that he said. These first and third statements are in the Gospel of Mark and also the Gospel of Luke. Matthew and Luke borrowed a lot from Mark. And Mark and Luke have these two statements, but they lack this next statement. Remember, Matthew was there. It concerned Matthew. Matthew was there at that meal when his world was exploding around him and he couldn't believe that this Jesus had called him and he'd gotten up and followed. What is he doing? Is he in some kind of dream? And now he's eating with this Jesus, this teacher. How is, what's going on? And as if the dream is suddenly going to be broken apart and he knew it was going to happen, it all come crashing down. The Pharisees are at the door and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Oh, the game is up. Now he really knows. It's Matthew who is there. And it's Matthew who gives us this last statement. Matthew who puts this statement between the first and the third statement, which was a way of writing back then, because they didn't have highlighters. This is the way you highlighted a point. You took 
two similar points and you put one before and one after and what you put between was the point that you wanted everyone else to pay attention to. That's what Matthew did. He didn't write it like Luke and Mark and do item one, item two, and let me give you a third like we might do. Instead, he used the way that back then when you'd write in a way to highlight, he highlights this third statement that he heard that he remembers, and that spoke to his heart. And we're going to have to do a little background work because this third statement comes from the prophet Hosea. Jesus has been called a teacher. He's turning back this idea of teaching on the Pharisees who were also teachers, rabbis who taught people. He's turning this back upon them, telling them that they now need to learn. And he reads from the prophet Hosea. Hosea is a prophet that wrote wrote when both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were still in place. But the northern kingdom was teetering. It had wandered so far from God that it was about to be torn away. And yet the southern kingdom was learning nothing by what was happening with the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was on the same path, like a younger sibling growing up in the same way as the old, rotten, older sibling. Matter of fact, the younger sibling looked like they might even surpass the rottenness of the older one. It's in this spirit that Hosea is writing, and I promise you, if you were to read Hosea in in the Hebrew, you would blush. Because the language is coarse and heavy. The language is full of overtones that I just hesitate to say before you. But it speaks of incredible disappointment in the bride. And it's in that language amidst all the struggle and all the, I'm going to throw you out and you're going to be done. It's in the midst of that that there's this glimmer of hope, this calling for what he wants. Because see, the people in the northern kingdom and the people in the southern kingdom are still worshiping God. They're still going through the motions, whether at the temples of the northern kingdom or at the southern, or in the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, where the temple was, where you know, they're still all going through the motions. They're still offering up sacrifices, but it's just that. They're going through the rhythms and doing just was while they still live a life completely separate from God. They're doing all the right things, but they are completely far from God. Their hearts are nowhere near God. And so we get this statement in Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus says in the second statement, after he says, hey, you know, a physician doesn't come for uh, the, the well, but rather for the sick. And I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. In the middle of that, he says, go and learn. He says this to the Pharisees, the ones who are questioning him, the one who are calling him teacher. He's saying, you want me to be a teacher? I tell you what, you go and learn what it says when it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The context of that is not that God is saying, hey, I don't want you to do sacrifice anymore. No, that's not what God is saying. The context is you're sacrificing, but it means nothing because your heart isn't in it. I desire mercy. That's what I want. 
And you know what that mercy word is? It's a word I've been telling you about for weeks now. Hesed. The Hebrew word is hesed. And that word is translated as mercy in Micah, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Mercy, hesed. You know what else that word is? You've heard me say this a lot. Come on now. Oh, jumped ahead. Oh, come Steadfast love. Hesed is steadfast love. Remember the, the mantra that the Hebrews had? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Go and learn what it says. They knew this word. They knew what the prophet had said. They knew it full well. But he's putting back on them. Hey, you're trying to teach people righteousness and you got all these rules. You're going to get them following the rules, but still not in the right place. Go and learn what it says. I desire mercy. I desire hesed. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I want people's hearts to be full of love and mercy. And you saw the other one. I tried to click it, but help me out. Grace. It's where we get our word grace. Grace is a free gift from God that we don't deserve, that we could never earn or ever repay. It's beyond us. It's given to us. Hesed is mercy, steadfast love, and grace. Jesus says, and Matthew heard it, and it still rings in his head and in his heart. Go and learn what it says. I desire hesed, mercy, steadfast love, grace, and not sacrifice. I'm not about you constantly making sure you got all the rules right. I'm about you following me and recognizing the love I have for you and that you have the same love back for me and that same love to others. This is Jesus calling this is what he was sent for, to come for those who are sick, to come for the sinners, and to come and give mercy and love, grace. And it's what we're called to do as well. And it's because he sees us. So this calling is on us now as well. Think about it, when you go out today and see so many people, take a moment and look truly at someone. The Spirit will lead you. Maybe it's a family member that you know full well, but it's time to really see them. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's time to really see them. <laughs> Maybe it's somebody checking you out of the store in the checkout line and doing your groceries or at the convenience store. You see them all the time, but maybe it's time to really see them. This is our calling, to provide hesed to others. Will you pray with me?
Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to see things through Matthew's eyes and to see things as you call us to see them. Help us to love you more and more and praise you and thank you for all the ways in which you see us, despite who we are, that you've offered us grace through Jesus Christ. Help us now to turn and do the same for others. In Jesus' name, amen. And now... May the grace, hesed, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours this day and forevermore. Amen.